Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Callie Crossley, and this is a special encore show of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. New Orleans natives are typically thought of as descendants of the Africans, French, and Spanish who arrived on the Gulf Coast in the 17th century. But for nearly 50 years, the city has also been home to a community of Vietnamese immigrants who have added to the city's ethnic gumbo. Eric Wynn gives us an intimate look at that community through the fictionalized lives of a mother and her sons in his debut novel, Things We Lost in the Water. Eric Wynn is editor-in-chief of DIACritics.org, the online journal and blog of the Diasporic Vietnamese Artist Network, or DVAN. And Eric Wynn joins me now from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Under the Radar, Eric. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you. Let me start by saying I love this book. Love, love, love. Love it. So good. So congratulations to you. Thank you. I like to uh, give my authors a chance to describe their own work. Um, So how would you describe your novel? I would describe my novel as a family saga that um, shows a family of Vietnamese refugees fleeing Vietnam after the war, settling to New Orleans, Louisiana, and how they cope with their new environment while also trying to remember their old homeland between 1978 to to 2005 when Hurricane Katrina comes. Mm -hmm. Now, why did you want to write this story? Um, I first met the the Vietnamese community in New Orleans about, I would say, eight, nine years ago. And I just learned so much about them, what they've been through. At the time, I was trying to write something more autobiographical, something about my own family, um, but I couldn't really get to it. And learning more about this community, I saw a lot of similarities to my own family, but also something that I'd never really seen before, um, mainly Vietnamese Americans in the South. And I thought that it would be a great story to tell. It was a story that wasn't told a lot before, and I wanted to highlight this community of resilient and strong people. So tell us about the main characters, um, whose names I'm going to butcher right now, um, Huang, Tuan, and Ben. Okay, so Hung, <laughs> she's the mother of this family. She is about in her late 20s when she flees Vietnam before she has fled Vietnam. She has basically made a, made a life for herself in Vietnam as the wife of a professor. She has like a daily rhythm that she goes into, but all that changes once the war comes and basically when the South Vietnamese loses and the whole of Vietnam is under communist rule, things change there for her and her family and they decide to leave. Um, Thum is the first son um, he was born in Vietnam. He has memories of his father, of his life there. Um, and once he gets to New Orleans, he's trying to deal with that loss 
um, as well as trying to fit into this new American life that he has. And the third character we have in the book is Ben, or has, as he later goes by, Ben. And he was born in a refugee camp, so he has no recollection of what Vietnam is. Um, all he really knows of is New Orleans, of America, and his story is of learning of his past, but also trying to become his own person. He really sees himself as this independent kind of person and trying to pave his own path for him. So let's start um, with how the family ends up um, in New Orleans, how they escape from uh, Vietnam. I'd love you to read the scene on page 30. When the time came to leave, Hung didn't believe it. That night, an old man with a dirty beard arrived at the house. They packed a suitcase, and Kong paid the man. They followed him into the jungle. The old man, who must have been at least 50, ran like a teenager, and they tried to keep up with him, though the thick, moist air that made it hard for Hung to breathe and run and carry Thum at the same time. A storm was coming. This was why it was so humid. Was it safe to go into the water now? Thum cried, and Hung had to cover his mouth. Please be quiet, Thum. Please, she begged. He cried louder, and she felt his hot breath on her palm. When there was a sudden noise, she nearly let go, but didn't. They all stopped running. The insects stopped their singing. The birds stopped their calling. It was the first time she had ever heard complete silence in the jungle. It sounded like a gunshot, said Gong, after a lengthy pause. Are they after us? Then, in an accusatory tone, Kong yelled at the old man. Are you one of them, old man? Are you ambushing us? The yelling made Thum cry louder, and the old man yelled back that he would never do anything like that. He said he was a man of his word, that he'd served for years in the South Vietnamese army. The two men argued as Hoon tried to make out the figures. She began to walk toward a shadow she thought was Kong. But approaching it, she saw it was a tree with its top chopped off like it was struck by lightning. The loud, sudden noise repeated and everyone went quiet again. That was my guest, Eric Wynn, reading from his new novel, Things We Lost in the Water. Well, I tell you, that um, you really get a sense of, of so much that was at stake for all of them and her fear and the situation that faced so many people. Those who know their history will know that um, the characters that you created there became known as the boat people because they escaped by boat, reached uh, America, uh, and there was lots of controversy about, you know, who to let into the country, you know, should they be here? It was it was a lot uh, going on. So their leaving was fraught and their coming to America was fraught. And it's through those scenarios that they then try to, you know, make a life for themselves in America. And to your point earlier, um, the immigrant story in Louisiana uh, is not one that people knew. Uh, I think they began to know it a little bit more after Katrina when they discovered there's a whole community uh, living here. And um, Eric, the reason that people, many people settle in Louisiana is because the landscape and the fishing um, was something that they could do that was uh, very familiar to them from Vietnam. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, the Vietnamese community there, a lot of them, especially the, the older generation, they work like in fishing and shrimping, um, basically down in the Gulf, um, getting food. Um, they also worked, um, I guess, in food preparation. There's like a good food scene there. And there's like a blend of, um, I guess, like that Cajun Creole mm-hmm. food that you know of, of Louisiana, plus their Vietnamese heritage. So that goes along with like the food um, gathering um, economy down there. Um, and then also like just in the community itself, the Vietnamese community has, um, I guess, community farm there and they grow a lot of crops that are part of Vietnamese cuisine. So I think the industry there and the weather, the climate was really favorable to the Vietnamese there um, that settled. So it was like home already. Now, you know, when I started reading your book, um, I'm, you know, I know it's a novel, so I'm reading along. It's great. And I'm thinking to myself, are these places real? So I went down a whole wormhole just looking up the community of Versailles, which is real. That's in your book. Your characters are fictionalized, but it is real. And so really, this is, um, it's almost like a historical novel in, in that. I mean, you're not calling it that, but in terms of the setting and what happened and where people lived in that community and what that community stood for and what the church there stood for, it very much is. Yeah, definitely. It was part of my research when I was in New Orleans. I visited New Orleans a lot when I was in grad school in Louisiana. And there is a whole community there. At first, I was really surprised to find it there because um, we don't really associate Vietnamese people with Louisiana, but they have a whole community there. They settled at first in Versailles, which, well, it was Versailles Arms Apartments. Um, It was government housing at the time that people were provided with um, to get on their feet. Eventually, Versailles did close down and people moved into like the suburbs more into like their own homes, which is where we we see a lot of Vietnamese now. Versailles no longer exists. It was closed down, Um, but the Vietnamese community is still there. The church is still there. Um, Everything is still there. It's just really evolved from the first time that they settled down in Versailles into something that they're more part of the New Orleans community um, just like anyone else. Mm-hmm. To be clear, uh, where Versailles and where this community generally is is something known as uh, New Orleans East, which yes. I, some I have people in New Orleans and Louisiana, but I didn't know about New Orleans East. First learned about that through The Yellow House by Sarah Broom. don't know if you're familiar with it, but it won, yes. it won yes. the nonfiction um, award for the National Book Award in 2019. And as she wrote of her family, nobody even knew that it existed because it's 15 miles from the French Quarter, just to put some some uh, parameters for people in their mind, geographical parameters. Uh, and so you're way out from where people think of, quote, New Orleans, uh, both in f- for her family and certainly for this Vietnamese community. So to, to some degree, people who are in that space were quite isolated from the rest of what we know as New Orleans. Yeah, definitely. Um, New Orleans East is a kind of, I would say a lot of people feel like it's forgotten. A lot of people that I've talked to from New Orleans East feel like it's a forgotten part of the city um, because it's just kind of out there. Like even if you drive from 
like the French Quarter into New Orleans East, like it's a very different feel. It feels like you're in a like even a different city, a different town, because like the landscape is totally different. Um, and I think Sarah Broom's book, The Yellow House, is a very good introduction to that area. She describes it perfectly in my mind um, of what it is to live in New Orleans East in this kind of, um, I guess, forgotten place, mm-hmm. place that's kind of bare bones. Um, and I, I feel like, I hope... I hope that my book kind of adds to the literature of that place because people do live there. It is part of New Orleans, like the city proper that people, again, always forget about or don't even know about. Uh, and there are a lot of lives there that need their stories told. So mm-hmm. I felt like this is my contribution to that community um, by showcasing like there are people who live out there. Oh, definitely. No, you, you made your point well. So your the title of your book is Things We Lost in the Water. And in fact, your story is framed by water all through it. Um, the Versailles community that we were just talking about is located near a part of the bayou. Um, later on in the book, the pool plays a part, a major part for one of your characters. And of course, the water bringing um, all the family to New Orleans to begin with um, out of Vietnam. So why water? Why, why was water... Uh, such an important symbol? Um, I think for Vietnamese people, like water is a very important symbol. The word for water, nuk, is also the word for nation. So like it's already ingrained in our language that water is important. The whole country is like basically on the coast. Seafood is really important to Vietnamese culture. Um, But then it gets its meaning kind of doubled, um, when you talk about the Vietnamese refugees, the boat people who escaped by water, because water was a way to save themselves, to escape from this oppressive regime. At the same time, water can kill you. A lot of people who tried to escape by boat from Vietnam died at sea. So for Vietnamese refugees, I think it's kind of part of our cultural memory that Water, yes, is important, but water can also kill us. Um, I think that meaning is kind of doubled even more when we talk about Louisiana. Louisa is a state that is really dependent on like the water at the Gulf. Um, we're talking about the shrimp industry, oysters, crabbing. That is very much part of the economy. It feeds people. So it's kind of a nourishment literally, and then nourishment to bring in money. Um, but at the same time, as you know, there's Louisiana's at, at water's mercy. There's hurricanes. Um, there's erosion. It's losing land. Places are getting destroyed because of storms that have water. So I think I was trying to explore that kind of duality of water, something as life-giving, something as essential for survival, but also something that can kind of kill you if something really bad happens. So the title is Things We Lost in the Water. Who is we and what do you think was lost? I think for the book, it was definitely my main characters, the three main characters, the mother and two sons. Um, They've lost basically a country through the water by escaping by sea, um, but I think they also lost 
part of their family. I mean, like a father or husband was left behind and with that a history. Um, and I think that's what the, all three of them are trying to grapple with is that loss of history of family and trying to make something new in their new environment. Um, and I feel like that's also like kind of a metaphor for Vietnamese Americans, Vietnamese refugees and immigrants um, when they left Vietnam on boats like my parents did. They lost like my characters, a country, a whole way of life. People who were like once doctors or lawyers um, in Vietnam came to America that start at the bottom being janitors, factory workers. Um, so basically they lost everything, everything of their life and have to start over again. Mm -hmm. So I think things we lost to the water really encapsulates what I see as something that's integral to Vietnamese diasporic history after the war. If you're just tuning in, this is a special encore show of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and in May, I spoke with author Eric Nguyen about his debut novel, Things We Lost in the Water. In June, former President Barack Obama featured the book on his summer 2021 reading list. So what we generally read, because it's true, uh, when we uh, read the stories of immigrants and settling into America, trying to figure out who they are in this new place. It's always a, a question about assimilation. I know it's a dirty word for a lot of people. But in your book, it's very interesting over the years because you note you, the book is divided into five parts and each part advances the years and you get to see how the family is more and more, to your point, integrated into New Orleans. I mean, they're Vietnamese, but, but now... Um, Hong thinks of herself as a New Orleans person, as she should, and she's American. So, what do you, how do you, how do you feel about that assimilation? I mean, you uh, presented it beautifully and matter-of-factly because that's a part of the process. But I wondered emotionally, how did you see it? I think it's kind of a double-edged sword, if you will. I feel like. Assimilation is something that happens, something that, especially for younger people who are immigrants or the children of immigrants, it's just something that they do to fit in and create their own identity as like these hyphenated Americans. Um, but I also feel like something is like always lost in assimilation, especially in terms of not only culture, but the stories of that culture. Um, I feel, for example, like one of my characters, Ben, he's become so assimilated in a way that he adopts like an American name to call himself that he sees himself as Ben. Um, but with that, he kind of loses that story of how his mother and his brother fled Vietnam in the first place. And it's something that he does struggle with like at the later parts of the book when he's trying to find that reconnection somehow with his culture, with his lost father. So I think on the one hand, assimilation is something that you do to survive and also create like these new identities. Um, I, I want to like emphasize that that sense of, that sense of agency in that. Mm -hmm. That assimilation can also be a kind of empowerment of creating like this new identity for yourself, um, which I feel is like, can be very powerful for a person. Mm -hmm. um, but I also feel like 
you do lose something, assimilation kind of necessitates you lose something and that something might be hard to get back or might be lost forever. So I, I feel it's like a mixed feeling that I have when it comes to assimilation because again, you get so much out of it, but then you also lose so much out of it. I think for a lot of immigrants, a lot of children of immigrants, it's always that balancing act between how much you can stand to lose versus how much like you want to gain. Mm-hmm. And I think we mentioned earlier in our conversation that some of the young people, particularly the second generation, for sure, and and more, have moved out of uh, the New Orleans East from this what was tight-knit community into other parts of the city as they should. And some of that assimilation has drawn a lot of attention because the foods of New Orleans have embraced Vietnamese traditions, like this bake shop, the Dong Phong Bake Shop, that has been noted by Gourmet Magazine and others for the best French bread, which, you know, goes into making banh mi. And, of course, it also makes king cakes, which is very traditional in New Orleans. So you have that mix going on. There are now people serving on uh, city council. There are local TV anchors. The presence of, of the Vietnamese community is as everybody else that's there. It's just now someone coming in sees a very different thing than than, um, they might have back in 1979, 1978, when people first started coming in in big groups. Yeah, definitely. The Vietnamese population in New Orleans has definitely had, like, been assimilating within the last couple, probably a decade or so, Um, especially with the younger generation who basically grew up American. They learn English. They get education. They move out not only into other parts of the city, but other parts of the country. Um, and then they might come back. Some might just stay in the city and they contribute in very different ways. Like you said, um, food ways in particular, there's a lively, I would say, Vietnamese fusion cuisine scene down New Orleans where uh, people are mixing Vietnamese heritage foods with like the local Cajun um, Creole Foods that but you know, loves. Eric. Some people hate that fusion. They hate. They hate that. <laughs> they don't like that. They don't like. That's a dirty word for a lot of people. <laughs> Just want to point yeah. that out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. Um, those changes. I feel like some people will like. Some people will not like. I feel like that's just a natural evolution when you have like different, a diverse population among each other. They like to try different foods from other cultures and like mix things up. I think it's very natural though. And finally, what do you want people to take away from the book? I think I want people to take away that Asian Americans belong in the South. They are part of the South, like I just said. Um, also want to people to take away, I guess, the Vietnamese American experience um, of what was lost, but also what was built. What was built was a community, new identities, new ways of living. Um resilience. I want people to take away that strength of the Vietnamese American community and what they've been through, particularly the Vietnamese American community in New Orleans and what they've been through. Um, And I really just want to shine a light on this community and show people that they exist. Thanks for joining me. 
Thanks for having me. Eric Wynn is the author of Things We Lost in the Water, his debut novel, and our May selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. It's available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's Encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at gbh.org, news Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.